Well, this morning we're going to uh, we're going to start we're going to uh, move into chapter three uh, of uh, of Hebrews. We'll be looking at verses one through six. In the previous chapter, Jesus uh, Jesus was shown to be better than the prophets and the angels. Uh, now the author addresses the superiority of Jesus over perhaps the most important man of the Old Testament, Moses. Uh, if you were a Jew living in the first century A.D. and uh, and before, and uh, you would have you would have recognized Moses would have been a name that uh, that would would have been uh, uh, well known, well revered, and uh, very much uh, a person that uh, the Jewish people looked to. Uh, he was he was arguably the most important man of the Old Testament, and uh, 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 not that he was necessarily worshipped by the Jews, but close to it, you know, you might say. And uh, uh, Moses was a guy who uh, who had a had an interesting history. He, I've always always been amused at the fact that uh, this guy started his ministry for God at eighty. You know. Uh, <laughs> He, his life was cut into to three 40-year segments, if you, if you want to look at it that way. The first 40 years, he was a prince of Egypt. The next 40 years, he was a shepherd. And the last 40 years, he was a leader of, of, uh, of the Hebrew people as they came out of Egypt. Uh, so it's just kind of an interesting, um, interesting life that the man led. And, and he, uh, he, uh, uh, at his birth, he was protected by God. Uh, very, uh, very, 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 uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Very miraculously, perhaps, that he was, uh, he was protected by God. He was delivered into the household of Pharaoh, where he was raised and educated. He knew, you know, he would have known the Egyptians well. He was, uh, would have been a very uh, well-educated man. And at the end of his life, God provi- provided for his uh, funeral in an extremely unique way. Uh, God literally buried him and uh, and on Mount Nebo, and so uh, from beginning to end, his life had God on either end of it, as is true for really all of us. But he was a man whom God spoke to face to face. Exodus thirty four twenty nine tells us that God spoke to Moses face to face. Moses saw the glory of God, and in fact, he saw it. And came down off the mountain, and he reflected it so much so that the people made him put a veil over his face because because they couldn't look at it. Uh, he was he was the man who led Israel uh, led Israel out of Egypt. Uh, he was the one God used to go to Pharaoh and say, "Let my people go." And he was uh, he was the man who wrote the first five books of the of the Bible. He wrote, known as the Pentateuch, and in the New Testament, it's called the Law of Moses. The, the, uh, the Jews referred to it that way, the law, of Mo- the law of Moses. He's the man who gave the, the instructions. God, well, God gave them to him, but then he instructed Israel on the building of the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant. And here in chapter 3, the Jewish people are told to look to Jesus, not Moses. That's, that's the direction their focus is to be. And they take nothing away in this text from Moses and his faithfulness to God. Uh, but the whole point is, Jesus is better. And that's what the Jews, that, that's what the author of Hebrews in this point wants the Jews to understand. While taking nothing away from Moses' service to God, Jesus stands above God. Uh, stands above Moses, excuse me. <laughs> My little bit of uh, heresy for the moment. But anyway, uh, but uh, 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 at any rate, uh, uh, he stands above Moses. And that's the uh, point the text is going to bring out this morning as we look at it. And he's going to look at it in three ways. He's, he's better as a representative, he's better as the builder, and he's better in his position. Uh, so those are the, the way I'm going to break the text down this morning. So before we do, uh, does anybody have any prayer requests this morning? My daughter Mary lives in Boston, and she de- she really needs a new job. Just pray that God would lead her to a better job. Okay. Not not like today, but as soon as possible. <laughs> yeah, today may be a bad day to go job hunting, but anyway. She's constantly job hunting. Okay. To find something better. 
All righty. Thank you. Ed, would you open us today? Sure. Father, we thank you for your word. Quicken it to our hearts, Lord. We pray for this young person to, to find the work that you have for, for them, Lord. We thank you that you guide our paths, Father. Open our, our ears and our hearts to your word in your name. Amen. Amen. So first of all, I want to look at uh, verse 1. Uh, Jesus is the better representative. Uh, Therefore, holy brethren, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of your confession. So here he says, he begins, uh, of course, with the uh, infamous therefore, which you always should ask, what is it there for? And uh, he, what he says here is, he says, in that therefore, he's saying to us, what I've said previously, what I said in chapter 1, that he's better, that Jesus is above the angels. Uh, and, and Jesus is the one who is seated at the right hand of God. In verse 11 of chapter 2, or verse 12, 10 of chapter 2, he says, he's the one who brings us to salvation, who brings the many sons to glory. In verse 11, he tells us that he is the one who, who is unashamed to call us a part of his family, to call us brethren. In verse 17, he's, he tells us that he is a, a merciful and faithful high priest, which is the first reference to Jesus as high priest, which for the next number of chapters we're going to be dealing with, a little bit here in this chapter, and especially in chapter 4 and chapter 5 and chapter 6. He says he's a merciful and faithful high priest who turned away the wrath of God who put us at peace with God. He also says in those texts that he is the, the one who, who is over our sanctification. He's the one that sanctifies us. He says, therefore, therefore. And then he, the next phrase is a very important one, because this tells you exactly who this, who this message is written to. He says, holy brethren. That's the next, the next thing he says. Uh, that's that's, that's uh, uh, a very wonderful way to say brothers, believers. That's what he's saying here. He's saying holy brethren, holy brothers. Depending on your version, I seem to have mixed a couple here. But at any rate, holy brethren. These are believers, the ones who have been sanctified, the ones who have been made a part of Christ's family, those that have been set apart and made holy. That's, that's what he's saying here. Holy brethren, believers. And, and he says, these holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling. The word, uh, in the New American Standard, and I think also in the King James, it uses the word partakers here instead of share. Um, and, it, and, uh, our, and, and we've had partakers earlier in the text, which was koinonia, which had, had a very significant meaning. This is a little bit different. This is a different Greek word. It's not the same Greek word. It's not koinonia. This, this particular word... Uh, means to be a, uh, it has the idea of being a partner. It's used in Luke when it refers to, in Luke chapter 5, verse 7, when, it, when it's talking about the, the guys, when the guys are out fishing and they bring in the nets that Jesus caused to be so filled they can't pull them in. And it says they called on their partners. It's this word. So it's those who we work alongside of is the idea. Uh, it's, it's that kind of an idea. Those who share in, who, who carry the load together, who work together, who bring to the, in the sense of a business, bring their talents and gifts. In the sense of the church, it's the same thing. It's that same kind of idea. He says, holy brethren, partakers, those who share in, those who are a part of, who bring themselves to this Heavenly calling. And that's, that's another just description. This is a, a, a more fuller description of a believer. Uh, a believer is someone who has been set apart, made holy by Jesus Christ, uh, and who has been brought into the family of God, so we are brethren. So he's saying holy brothers who share, who are partners in all of this. That's, that's the idea that he's saying here. And what is it we're partners in? In the heavenly calling. In Ephesians 2, chapter 6, we are told that, and, and speaking of Jesus as directed toward us, and raised us up with him, seated, seated as with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
That's the idea here. This is what it's talking about. He's talking about the inheritance that's Jesus that we share in the heavenly places. In Philippians 3, 14, he says, uh, Paul said that he presses toward the mark of the upward call. That's what he had his eyes fixed on. That's what he was doing. He was fixed upon Jesus here in this point. In verse 20, it says that our citizenship is in heaven. We're simply sojourners in this world. We we're cons- consider ourselves as aliens here. And to understand that our true citizenship is with God. And that's, that's what he's calling them to be reminded of as he, as he leads into this, this section. He's calling them holy brothers who, who are sharers in the heavenly call. And that's what we, uh, that's the idea here, is we have been called with a heavenly calling. We've been called by the creator of the universe. It's an awesome, it's an awesome, uh, it's an awesome thought. I, I was thinking there's a whole bunch in this text today that uh, is probably going to filter in to the morning's message since it's the Calvinistic message. <laughs> this is election. We've been called. Each and every believer has been called into God's family. You've received the call of God. We always talk about pastors being called. Well, that's a specific job calling, you know. But believers are called. That's the point here. You've been called with a heavenly calling. You've been called into God's family. He chose you to be there. That's an awesome, an awesome thought. I think it's sometimes beyond my, my ability to even comprehend. Ephesians 1.18 says... The hope to which we have been called, and it's a, it's a guaranteed hope. It's, it's, not, uh, it's not, gee, I wish this would happen. This is a guarantee. That's the idea here. Second Timothy, verses uh, 1 and 9. Or, or excuse me, cha- uh, <laughs> Second Timothy, chapter 1, verse 9. Sorry about that. Anyway, who saved us and called us to a... To a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purposes and grace, which he gave us in Jesus Christ before the ages began. That's the call. The call was before the ages began. It's a holy calling that God and God alone purposed to do on your behalf. What, a, what an amazing thought. So he says... Having, having introduced who he's talking to, the holy brethren who've been called by a heavenly calling, he says this, therefore consider, that's, that's, that's the next part of this verse, consider Jesus, the apostle, or excuse me, yeah, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Therefore, consider Jesus. Incidentally, this isn't a good suggestion. He isn't saying here, hey, I've got something I want you to look at and consider. He's saying, do this. It's a command. There's, this is not optional for the believer, for those holy brethren. This is not optional. This is something we are to do. We are to consider Jesus. This word consider uh, has the, uh, carries the idea of put your attention on or, uh, or, uh, or, uh, um, and it's in the, excuse me, it's in the form of being a continuous action. That's the idea here. It's a continuous observation. It's to give Jesus your full attention and keep it there. It's not just a momentary idea. It's a lifestyle, if you will. This is, this is what believers are to do. Our, our focus, our, our, our attention is to be on Jesus. That's, that's where it's to be. In, in verse 1, or excuse me, in, in chapter 2, verse 1, he told us to pay closer attention. In chapter 12, Verse 2, he's going to tell us to look to Jesus. In the NASB, it says, fixing your eyes on Jesus. That's, that's the idea here. It's to have a focused attention on the one who saved us, the one who sanctified us, 
the one who has called us into those heavenly, with that heavenly calling, the one who is seated at the right hand of glory, who will one day take us to be with him. That's where our focus is to be. That's what he's saying. Consider Jesus, giving him his full attention. In Philippians 3.10, Paul said his goal was to know him, to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his, of his, uh, uh, <clears throat> of his suffering being conformed to his death. Jesus, or, excuse me, Paul said, I want my attention to be solely on Jesus. And that's, that's the idea that's being expressed in these verses here. He's saying, he's saying, holy brethren who share in this heavenly calling, consider Jesus. And then he gives us something about who, something about what we are to consider about Jesus. He says, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. These are two very interesting words. I know you have probably heard 872,425 times. We're going to make it 26. An apostle is a sent one. It's used, uh, it, that's its official translation, sent one. That's what it means, someone who is sent by someone else. Uh, it could be translated ambassador. It's a word that uh, refers to not so much that like, I asked Michael or Mark to run to the store and get a gallon of milk for me. It's not that. It's an official sending. It's, it's, a, it's a sending by someone in authority, a king, a nation, whatever, whatever the authority basis is. It's, one, it's someone who, who not only goes in that authority, but carries that authority with them. That's the idea behind it. It's, it's a very powerful word. It means someone who is sent to someone else to speak on behalf of a sovereign and to speak as if the sovereign was standing there speaking to you. That's the idea here. Now, it doesn't translate that well into human uh, existence in the world today. For example, the United States has ambassadors to everywhere. And they speak with the authority of the United States government. But, you know, sometimes they're sent home. <laughs> and sometimes they don't do too good a job. But that's not the idea here. The idea here is, this is someone who represents a king. And he represents him with the full authority of the king. In the case of Jesus, he's the one who represents God before man. That's what this text, that's what this verse is saying of him. He is the ambassador. He is the apostle. He is the one sent by God, John 3, 16 and 17. That's exactly what this text is talking about. Uh, that's, that's who he is. He, he, is the, he is the apostle who God sent to his people to represent him. In Moses' case... He was, in a sense, an apostle. He was sent by God to represent him before Pharaoh, certainly. He came in and said, God said, let my people go, a number of times. He also represented God before the people of Israel, Exodus 3.10. The other one was Exodus 7. One through two, incidentally, where he was commissioned to go to Pharaoh. Um, but in Jesus' case, he represents God before man, through the whole of mankind. Uh, as I said, John three sixteen, uh, Hebrews one three, who uh, Hebrews one three says that also tells us the same kind of idea. Uh, John John fourteen uh, fourteen nine says, "He who has seen me has seen the Father." In John twenty twenty one, he says, as the Father who sent me, even now I send you. That's when he commissioned his apostles. He says, with the full authority of God, that's an ambassador, I am who sent me, I'm sending you. And now you take my authority with you. That's, that's the idea here. Uh, this is someone sent by someone else with authority. Both Moses and Jesus were that. And then he talks about him also being our high priest. This is also a representative um, 
status or person. Because the high priest represents man before God. It's the other side. The ambassador represents the sovereign before other people. The high priest represented the people before the sovereign. That's the idea here. In the Old Testament, in the Old Testament economy, the high priest was the only one who could go into the Holy of Holies to bring the sacrifice. And even then, it was through a whole system of cleansing and whatnot. And according to Josephus, they tied a rope around his foot and put bells on the bottom of his skirt just in case he goofed so they could get his dead body out. It was a, but it was, that was the idea. He was the one who represented the people before God. And that's what Jesus holds that position. Jesus is the one who represents us before God. One three tells us that he was our sin offering. He represented us before God. Moses didn't hold that position. His brother Aaron did. Therein is, becomes a big difference. Because while Mo- Moses was an ambassador of God to the people, he was not the ambassador, or he was not the high priest before God representing the people, although he did make intercession and he did do other things for him. But the point here is, that's not the position that he held. He was not, uh, he was not the high priest of Israel. His brother Aaron was. Jesus fulfills both of those roles. So he represents both God before us and us before God. That's the idea here. This is a, this is a statement of, repre- of who our representative is. And in this case, it's Jesus all the way around. Moses only held the one position. And then he goes on and he, he uses this, he uses this, this uh, uh, imagery of uh, construction uh, to explain to explain how Jesus is the better builder in verses two through four, where he says, "Who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God." Now you'll notice in this text. The author doesn't take anything away from Moses. He doesn't discourage Moses in any way. He's just pointing out that how much better Jesus is, how much higher he is as he goes into it. And he's going to use this illusion of a building. And, and buildings, are that's a, it's a common imagery that is used in, in, in the New Testament. Uh, it's, it's something that's easy to understand. Uh, most people live inside some kind of a structure, and uh, someone had to build it, and and so it's it's kind of easy to understand. And, and he says he begins by saying, uh, speaking of Jesus, still in verse two, who that is Jesus was faithful to him who appointed him. In other words, Jesus was faithful to God in all that he was to do. That's that's basically what he's saying here. That Jesus was faithful in what he did. Uh, John seventeen four. He says that he accomplished the work that he was assigned, and that's that's the role that uh, has to be 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 done here is to accomplish the work that was assigned. He didn't leave it unfinished. It was it's an accomplished fact. Is what he's saying, and it's, so he's saying he's saying that Jesus who was faithful to to all that was appointed him, just as Moses was. He's still, Moses is still highly honored right here at this point. Well, he's going to continue to be through this text, but just as Jesus is better. <laughs> That's the point uh, that he's trying to make. And he's saying, he's saying here, Moses was also faithful in all that he was appointed to do. Moses carried out what God uh, wanted him to do. And, and Jesus did, did the same thing. Uh, faithful is a present participle, which means... In the sense, in the case of Jesus, where it says "who was faithful," the "was" there is a is a present participle, which, but basically, that figure of speech means, and he continues to be faithful, which is interesting. I think 
He, he continues to be faithful. He was faithful in everything he did in his incarnation. And as the son back in heaven at the right hand of God, he continues to be faithful in everything that he is assigned and he accomplishes it. Ultimately, that's what it's saying here. That's a that's kind of a powerful idea here. He, and in, in Hebrews 7, 20, 25, it tells us in one of those ways, which that is, uh, that is, that is true, he, is that he lives to make intercession for us, for them, and that is actually what it says in the, in the case, but the uh, them refers back to believers. So he lives to make intercession. Jesus makes intercession for you and me. I'm glad because I probably don't pray that good, and I'm glad the Holy Spirit fixes the ones that are messed up, you know? Uh, I'm very thankful for that kind of thing. But I also know that I have another one who is interceding for me, Jesus. That's what he's saying here. Uh, He's saying Jesus continues to be faithful in his work. And he he says here that that Moses was faithful in his work, but his work was as an ambassador to represent God to mankind. That's basically what, what he was to do. Now, he did make intercession for the people on a couple of occasions. Probably more than a couple, but two in particular I picked out. Uh, in in uh, Exodus 32, 11 through 14, Moses intercedes with God on behalf of the people after they decided that Moses was gone too long on the mountain getting the Ten Commandments. So they built a golden calf and decided to worship it. Well, Moses intercedes there because God is, says he's going to destroy them. And Moses intercedes on their behalf at that point. And then on another time, <clears throat> they got a little fed up with uh, being out, out on the countryside and uh, wandering around in the desert. So they uh, rebelled and they wanted to return to Egypt. You know, it's interesting how we, uh, we do things like that, don't we? we uh, you know, we always look back to past things and think... Uh, think, uh, well, maybe it was better yesterday because we forgot all the bad things that went on with yesterday. <laughs> That's why. But in Numbers 14, uh, 13 through 19, once again, when they rebel and, and want to return to Egypt, Moses intercedes on their behalf. So yes, Moses was an intercessor, but nevertheless, he didn't represent them as high priest. But he was faithful in what he was called to do. And then he, then he uses the word, then he uses these words here. He says, he says, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. Oikos. This word really doesn't refer to the building, the structure so much. The word refers to, to those who inhabit the house. It refers to the household. In fact, that's very often the way it's translated, is household. Moses was was faithful in 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 the care of God's household. Israel, the Hebrew people. 1 Corinthians 4.2 tells us that what's required of a steward? To be faithful. That's what's required of you. It's not the volume of work you do. It's not the kind of work you do. It's are you faithful to the task you're assigned to do. That's, that's, that's the ultimate judgment. Uh, that's the ultimate judgment. Is are you faithful in doing what God has called you to do? And what he is saying here is Moses was faithful to do what he was called to do, which was to represent God before the people the Hebrew people, and to lead them. And he says he was, he was, he was, he was, he was, a, he was faithful in all of that. So basically, at this point, he's saying Jesus was faithful in what he should, what God called him to do. Moses was faithful in what he was called to do. And then verse two, 3, he says, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of the house has more glory than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. And now here is where the contrast comes. 
Moses, while he wasn't called to lead the people, while he was called to represent the people before God, he was a member of the household. He was a member of the Hebrew nation. Jesus was its creator. That's the difference. Jesus is more glory because he's the one who built the house. You know, a house doesn't, if, if a house doesn't have someone to build it, it's just an empty lot. You know, that's exactly the idea here that's being expressed in this, in this illustration. He's basically saying, he says, for, for, for Jesus has been counted more worthy because he's the builder. We've already had this developed in chapter 1 that Jesus is the creator. He's the one that brought all things into existence. He brought the nation Israel into existence. He's the one, it is through him that Abraham was called and the sons of Abraham were made into a nation. It is those promises upon which all of this is built. And it is he who was the pillar of fire and the cloud that carried them across the wilderness. And it was he that leads them into the promised land. He's the builder. Moses was just running the household. But he was a member of it. Jesus is the builder of the household. Moses was a faithful member, and he did all that he was called to do. But Jesus is the one who built the house. And he built both the house of Israel and the household we live in, the church. They're both his. That's the, that's the, that's the idea here. John 1.3 says, all things, were made, uh, <clears throat> all things were made through him, and without him, was nothing uh, was not anything made that was made so when we come to this text here he wants us to understand that Moses was a great man Moses was a faithful member of the household of God Moses did all that he was called to do but Jesus is the one who gave the calling Jesus is the one who built the household in which Moses served. Jesus is both the architect and the builder of all these things. And it's important that, uh, that these Jewish people understand that. They need to understand that difference. Yes, Moses was a great man, but Yahshua is greater. Because he's the builder. He's the architect. He's the one who fashioned all of these things. And then in verses 5-6, he's going to tell us that Jesus is better because of his position. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Jesus is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So here he, 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 builds, he builds a little bit more on this, on this idea. He talks about the position that Moses held and the position that Jesus holds. He repeats from 3.2 uh, in saying that both, both are faithful. Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant. That's the, that's the first thing he says here. Now he's making the point that I was talking about earlier. Moses was a part of the household. In the household, he was a servant of God. That's what he's saying here. He's, he's making this very important. He was a servant. Now this word is a word that's only used here in the New Testament for servant. It's a common word used in the Old Testament. Abraham is called by this name. David is called by this name. Uriah is called by this name. There's a whole bunch of people in, in the Old Testament that are called by this name. But this term for servant is not the idea of a household slave. It's a term of dignity and freedom. 
It's not a slave or a dependent. It means one who serves a superior and carries the idea of a willing service, not forced. That's the idea here. This would be very similar to, uh, let's say, although I hate to use these two guys, but at any rate, at this point, um, this would be the equivalent of the chairman of the chief joints of staff to the president. It's that kind of a comparison. It's a, it's a position of authority and dignity and freedom, not a slave, but one who serves and is willing to serve. That's the idea here. It says that's who Moses was. He was, he was not the one in total command, but he was just under him. He carried a position of authority and dignity. And he did it willingly. That, that's the idea here. And, and then in verse 6, he, he contrasts that. We're going to go back to verse 5 and pick up more of verse 5. But for a moment, we're going to shift to verse 6. Because he contrasts this willing servant, this underling in the household, but yet a man with absolute dignity and authority, and he, and he contrasts him with Jesus. He says, who is a faithful son over God's household. Now, there's a big difference between being a part of the household and being the one over the household. And there's a big difference between being, although at a high-placed pl- servant, and the son and the heir who owns the household. And that's the contrast he's making here. Moses worked in the house. Jesus owned the house. That's, that's, that's what it's saying here. That's, that's the point he's making here. Uh, he, he's talking about uh, uh, being over it. The full authority. The, thor- the authority that under which Moses worked was the authority that came from Christ. That's, that's, that's what he's telling them. You need to consider Jesus because he is over Moses. Moses was great and he did and he's a man to admire and to look up to. But Jesus is over him. He is more faithful. He is more glorified. That's that's what he's that's the point he's trying to make here. And then he goes, he goes back to verse 5 again. Well, I'm going to go back to verse 5 again. He says, as a servant to testify of the things that would be spoken later. Here we have Moses in the office of a prophet. It says that the things Moses said, the things Moses talked about, the things that are found in the Pentateuch spoke of things that were to come. Those things that are to come are Jesus. They're the Messiah. Uh, that's, that's what he's saying here. Uh, Deuteronomy <clears throat> chapter 18. Verse 15. The Lord your God will rise up for you a prophet like me from among those of your brethren. It is to him you shall listen. And then again in verse, in fact, if you go on down through there, it says, Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see the, the great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, <clears throat> They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up them a prophet like you from among the brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak shall speak to them all that I have commanded him. And basically, he's talking about Jesus at this point. Moses is saying, what, what this text basically is telling us is Moses was a prototype of what was to come. And his words here tell us that the one to come will be the one that comes with a full authority. The one to come is the one who will, who, whose commands we are to follow. That's, that's, what, he's, that's what he's telling us here. Uh, that, that's the idea. Moses served in the position of a prophet at this point. And that's what he's telling them. He's telling them, there's one who will follow me, who will be like me, 
I'm a prototype of him. I'm a, a, a foretaste of what he will be like. But he comes with the full authority of God. And that's, that's what he's telling him here. Jesus will be the great prophet. He's the one. He's the one that will completely. He will be God in their presence, God incarnate. Jesus said in John five forty six, He says, "For if you believe Moses, for if you believed Moses, you would have believed me. For he wrote of me." That's what he told them. He says. You know, if you really believed Moses, if Moses is as great to you as you say he is, then you wouldn't have a problem with me because I'm the one he told you about. That's my paraphrase. Anyway. And then he goes on. He spoke, he spoke of me. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house. And we are his house. That's what he's saying to these believers. That's what he's saying to these, to these holy brethren who share in the heavy, heavenly call that he's called to put their total focus, their complete attention, and keep it there on Jesus. He's telling them, you, we are God's house, his house. Christians are the household of God. Ephesians 2, 19-22, 1 Timothy 3.15. You ought to be familiar with that one because I've heard it around here a whole bunch. Uh, it was the theme to our Steadfast Conference uh, where he says, Okay, what did I do with my text? Oh, if I delay, you may know uh, know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. That's what that's what uh, it's a household. It's a household, and that we're a part of that household. And Timothy, as uh, Paul is telling Timothy there, and you know, and. It is a household, and keep it neat, and don't throw your dirty socks on the floor. But ultimately, this is how you behave in the household. And he goes on. He goes on, and he only, only, only Christ, only Christ, it, only in Christ does the household function. Colossians two nineteen, there were to hold fast to the head, who nourishes, who nourishes and knits all things together. And from that comes growth. That's, that's the idea of the Colossians passage. And then he says, here's, if you're a household member, here's what's required of you. Here's something that is required of you as a household member. Um, <clears throat> if we are his house, in, in de- if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in him. Now in the context... Of Hebrews, where we are in Hebrews, in time and space, and uh, in the, this part of the first century, in the 60s of the first century A.D., there's a number of things going on. If you're a Jewish believer, then you have been cut off probably from your family, uh, from your home. Well, that would be the same thing, family and home, but maybe from your career. Uh, you are having Jewish people constantly hammering on you, the more orthodox, uh, hammering on you that, well, this Jesus thing may be okay, but you need to do da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. You need to keep all the Jewish ritual. You need to keep all the Jewish ideas. In fact, as we have seen, even the Gentiles had problems with them. They were coming into their assemblies and telling them, oh, you've got you to be a Jew first. You know, that's the idea. So all of that was going on. They haven't quite reached the point of Roman persecution. That's about to happen. That hasn't started. The persecution right now is Jewish. And it would be a lot of pressure. Just stop and think about it. You know, probably some of you have faced this. I I don't know. But uh, in your own families, if you're maybe the first one in your family to come to Christ, how do the rest of the family react to you? Oh, you know him, that guy. You know, well, we'll invite him, but, you know, whatever. 
Or you get the other side of it. You're the one that's authorized to pray over the meal at Thanksgiving. <laughs> I had an interesting experience once. My, my brother is married to a Jewish gal. Um, obviously, they're not Orthodox. Uh, but, uh, but nevertheless, she is Jewish by heritage um, and doesn't practice it. But her parents were a little more practiced Judaism. Uh, I forgot what part of the section of Judaism they would fit in. They weren't Orthodox, but just below that. And uh, uh, we were, and my sister-in-law always wanted to have these big Thanksgiving dinners and wanted us all to come. And on this one occasion, her dad was there, who was a really great guy. I really liked her dad. And uh, he, was, uh, he, was, uh, he, was, he was an interesting guy. But he told her he wanted me to pray for the dinner that day. Now I got a room full of Jews <laughs> and there's a couple of Gentiles in there and just one family that's Christian. <laughs> and it was like, okay, <laughs> here we go. <laughs> it was interesting. And he was very happy that I did it. So, okay. We did it. Hopefully God was honored in that, but it's just a interesting situations that you can be in, you know, but imagine being a Jew and your whole family is like, Stay away from me. You know, you got the plague. That's, that's kind of the way they were treated. So this is kind of important. He says you got to hold fast. you got to hold fast to your confession. Calvin calls this the preservation of saints, and I suspect we're going to hear a little bit about that a little bit later this morning, so I'm not going to go into a whole lot of detail here. But the, the, point, the, point, here, uh, the point here is... is, is you got to hold fast. That's what he's calling them to. There is trouble now, and there's more trouble coming. You know, it's one thing to have your family members say you're Posada non gratis. It's another thing to meet a lion, you know, and that's coming. So he's saying, you got to hold fast to your confession. We who are members of this household have to say so. I guess you could put it that way, that that's what he's saying here. We who are members of Christ's household need to stand up and say, that's who we are. That's who we are. This is hold fast to your confession, to the confidence and boasting in our hope. That's the confession part of it, the boasting in your hope. And, and be confident in knowing who you are and whom you serve. Those are the things he's saying here. In, <clears throat> In Mark chapter 4, verses 3 and following, we have a, a parable I'm sure you're all familiar with. It's the parable of the sower and the seed. And in the course of that, with one of the seeds, it falls on certain types of ground and it comes up for a little bit. Uh, then in verse 17, it says this, When tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. There are those. And what he's saying here is, true believers, that doesn't happen. True members of the household, they don't fall away. They don't let persecution and trouble drive them out. In fact, persecution and trouble often are the means by which God cleans out the tares. That's basically what that text is telling you. It pushes out those who just hang around and say, yeah, I like it here. These are nice, friendly people. And well, the preaching is okay, but, you know, I don't want to get too involved in that churchy stuff. But at any rate, they've never really committed to Jesus Christ. They don't really know him. They're not really house members. They're just temporary house guests, I suppose you could say. That may be another heresy. But anyway, uh, just uh, any, and anyhow, anyhow, he's saying, he's saying that's, that's the real house members, they hold their confidence. They know where their trust is set. They know where it is fixed. They know who they believe. And they're persuaded. That's what he's saying here. John, 1 John, John is helpful here because John tells us in John chapter, uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out. That it might become plain, that it might, 
that it might become plain that they are not of us. That's an important thing to understand. There are going to be those who come around. They may get involved. They may seem like they're true, but some little thing and they go off. Maybe it's not a little thing. Maybe it's a big thing. But we see this happen. They just go away. And they go off back. They go back to where they once were. But in chapter 5 of 1 John, John tells us this. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is, has, has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whomever is born of him. By this we know that we love the children by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and that his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that overcomes the world. He who has overcome the world uh, except the one who believes Who is the one who overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? That's what overcomes the world. Total confidence and holding your hope. Belief in Jesus as the Son of God. So in this first opening section of chapter 3 on the superiority of Jesus to Moses, the author has told us that, that Jesus was the better representative He both represented us before God and God before us. He was both an apostle of God and the high priest and our high priest. Not only that, he is he is the better builder because he doesn't just maintain the house. He's the guy that built the house. He called the house together. He put it together. He made it. And that house, of course, is all of us. But at any rate, he's the builder. And he's better in position because he's not merely an esteemed member of the household. He's the son. He's the house owner. And he's the heir of all things. Therefore, hold fast to your confession. Hold fast to your hope. Keep your confidence in Jesus. Because it's through him you overcome. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you this morning. We thank you for this text. We thank you for the, for the powerful message that is here. It's a reminder that our focus is not on all the trivial stuff that's running on around us, but it's to be on Jesus. That's where we are to concentrate our focus. That's where we are to, that's, it's by him and through him that we understand this other stuff. Uh, that we understand He is the Sovereign. He is the one who called the church together. He is the Son who oversees that church, who is over it, who builds it, who causes it to grow, who nourishes it. Who nourishes it. And in Him we can put our full confidence and trust, knowing that He will bring us home to glory with Him, where He is currently seated at the right hand of God, making intercession for us, One day we will be there with him. And we praise you and we thank you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.